Today, we have the great pleasure of being joined by legendary stock trader Peter Tuckman. Peter is widely considered the most famous trader on Wall Street. Over the last 35 years, Peter has been trading on the New York Stock Exchange and has been profiled regularly on leading media outlets, including CNBC, Bloomberg, Reuters, CNN, Washington Post, as well as many others. Due to his iconic image, Peter is also commonly referred to as the Einstein of Wall Street and is frequently sought out after for his immense insight and experience in the market. I'm so excited to have you on the show today, Peter. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Likewise. Um, you know, can we just begin by you explaining how you got to where you are today? <laughs> That's a long story. I don't think we have enough time. Um, <laughs> I will say that, you know, I, um, I grew up in New York City. I um, went to a wonderful high school, Riverdale Country School. I ended up going to the University of Massachusetts, where I originally started studying agriculture and then went on to study business international business. When I graduated college, I moved back to New York and started trading commodities. I'm not really sure if I remember what drove me to it. I just found it exciting. And I sort of developed on my own a method of trading orange juice futures and potatoes and stuff like that while I was getting a master's in business at Baruch University. And um, my, my life and career after that, I was sort of, I ended up having a record store in New York and started a record company. I had a an, uh, an art gallery. I ended up moving to West Africa for a couple of years where I did accounting for a Norwegian oil business, oil company. And then I moved back to New York. I was still in my 20s and I got a summer job as a teletypist on the floor of the stock exchange with Cowan and Company, uh, the head of which had been a patient of my dad's. My father was a doctor here in New York. And um, so I, uh, it was an opportunity when I came back from Africa. It seemed super exciting. I didn't know you know, I knew about stocks just just by nature, but I didn't know that much about the stock market. And it seemed like an awesome, exciting opportunity. I knew it was a very human based, you know, um, uh, exciting, adrenaline racing, wild and crazy place. And that sort of sure. fell in with my personality. So I took the job. I was a, a teletypist. I was not given any special treatment. I just started, you know, it was back in 1985. It was pre-computers. There was Still, you know, a lot of open outcry and paper trading and whatnot. And I was just sitting in the back of the booth um, right underneath the where they ring the bell now and under the podium. And um, it was from May 23rd. It was just recently my 35th anniversary on the floor, uh, May 23rd, 85. And I did that for three months. And I just found that the energy and the adrenaline and excitement of the people and the place was for me. It was just it fit right in with my my uh, makeup. And uh, when September came along, I asked for a real job and they gave it to me and I became a clerk, you know, and you probably know this and many people don't often know, you know, there's no training for a job on the stock exchange. You sure. basically historically over a hundred years, people have come down there as a friend of the grandson or a friend of somebody or whatnot. And hopefully some have had further education, some not. Um, but you basically come down there and you're just it's you're thrown into the fire. And if your psyche and your uh, uh, makeup can handle the fast and furious ways of numbers and the human interaction, then it can often be a place for you. And that was the case for me. I became an option clerk, a retail clerk, an institutional clerk. And then over the next two and a half years, I went on to become a, a trade. A, 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 I, I got a seat on the stock exchange. And back in the 80s, it usually took 10, 12 years 
to do that, but I was sort of in the right place at the right time and got super lucky as people rarely moved their positions down there. And, you know, unless I had somebody who ended up retiring, someone had got a job offer, somebody left, and I sort of moved up the, um, moved up the chain and uh, ended up getting a seat, which is everybody who, come down, who comes down there's goal. And right. that was 1987, uh, 1988, because I was a clerk during the crash of 87. Wow. Uh, and, uh, and that was the beginning of my career. And, you know, it was, um, I've been a broker since then. Uh, you know, in the beginning, I worked for Cowan and Company. I worked for a convertible arbitrage company called Lee Securities for a while. You know, I, I worked for Tradition Asia. So I've had many different jobs all under the, uh, uh, the, the title of a trader with the seat of the st- on the stock exchange for many, many years. And it was not till really 2007 that things started to change up and I became um, sort of the new incarnation of me, the new Einstein of Wall Street uh, character. You know, you as Dr. Doom, right? What's that? You replaced Mr. Doom. No, I replaced the market dude. That was right. His name was Alan Gershowitz, actually. Yeah. Right. One guy who was the guy they always took pictures of back in the day. Right. And called him the market dude. And there's a fun, uh, the Daily News in 2008, I think, did a piece on me. He was, he sort of passed me the baton. He said, I'm leaving. Let, let Tuckman do it. And, and sort of that was the beginning of that new incarnation. Very nice. Okay. So how has the stock exchange changed since the first time you stepped on the floor 35 years ago up to today? Because I feel like back then there were probably a couple thousand people. And now from what I'm hearing on the street, there's about four or five hundred roughly. So a lot has changed. So we're talking 1985 was really some of the preeminent, wonderful days of the exchange, although they had had 100 years before that that were great. But from my experience since 85, you know, we had 1,565 brokers. There was a huge support system, whether it was clerks, uh, there were market makers, they, we called them specialists back in the day. Uh, this, the specialists had a support staff, which were two guys and, and, and reporters and clerks and backup clerks. So mm-hmm. at every level in the job, you know, you start out, there were squads, reporters. I mean, there was such a huge support staff. So I would imagine there were 5,000 plus people uh, throughout the four or five rooms uh, you know, at the peak in the late 80s, we had the main room, we had the garage, we had an expanded blue room and the, the blue room. And then we had what was called 30 Broad Street. So it was a period where the market was super robust. There were a lot of new listings. You know, we've never changed the amount of brokers on the floor mm-hmm. because that was like a taxi medallion that was issued in the ner- early 1900s, how many seats there would be. And, you know, they've had been filled throughout history up to a peak, I think it was about 1,565. But there were 5,000 people there. It was open outcry. There were no cell phones. You had no phones, you had beepers, right? And there were phone trees all over the floor where you would contact your booth to get information and get orders. So, and pre-computer, you know, in 1987, the crash of 87, there's a famous photo of the teleprompter Quotron machine, which was pre-computer. It was a static, television screen that showed you the the uh, stock movements of the day and how the Dow industrial average doing on that day and so that was that was the day of you know the gordon gecko wall street movie the severe open outcry screaming and yelling and super excitement in that day you know the october uh, uh 11th of 87 crash 
you know, my points. What's that? I think it fell 600 points that day. It fell 600 points, the largest percentage point drop ever. And uh, I was still, I was a clerk and I had just become an institutional clerk and it was chaos and it was madness. And it was a perfect example as a memory of what it was like with the amount of people, the excitement, the chaos, the anxiety, paper flying everywhere okay. and dropping at intervals that were amazing. So to go from that point, which went on for many more years after the crash of 87, to the point where we are today, where we have technology coming into the marketplace. We have obviously computers and cell phones on the floor, not personal cell phones, but floor cell phones. We've got handheld computers that can, you know, send out hundreds of orders at a, at a clip. So with the advent of all this, this technology and algorithms, high frequency trading, all those things that have come in since 2000, obviously there were a lot of it was, you know, what, what it used to take 10 brokers to do can be happened by one machine now. It doesn't get the attention it uh, did back then, and it doesn't get the personal human element uh, uh, interaction and judgment as it did back then. But, in, you know, in this day of computers and electronic trading, it can do what it took 10 brokers to do. So right. all that yeah. we down to probably about 700, I would think, 700 people around the floor, whether they are market makers uh, what we call DMMs now, designated market makers. Those are the, the people who put the buyers and sellers together. Me, brokers, as we are, I'm not sure how many, 300 or more of those, support staff around us, whether it's supervisors or clerks, and that there are, there's very little paper on the floor. There is, you know, open outcry on the openings and the closings. You know, there is what we call, um, What's the word called? Um, uh, I can't even remember it. Where we end up, you know, on the opening and the closing, humans are still involved in the secondary business on the opening, on IPOs, sure. uh, uh, human All interest. Right, the close. You call it, yeah, I can't even remember the word. Um, where, where we actually go into the crowd and trade. It's not happening now during COVID. But so, you know, we have a much, uh, the excitement level is muted in a way just by there's so, so few people. But yep. the excitement and the, the magic that goes on in that room still easily mimics what it was back in the day. Uh, sure. and, and so those are the changes, technology. Very nice. And it sounds like you experienced all the highs and lows of Mr. Market, so to speak. The 87 crash, the dot-com bubble, the Great Recession, not to mention 9-11 as well. Um, and, you know, growing up, I remember seeing you all the time on Bloomberg, CNBC, on mm -hmm. every newspaper you know, for your expressions. And I highly recommend to everybody that's listening to Google it because automatically they're going to instantaneously recognize you, <laughs> I mean, especially if they follow finance. So, you know, what were some of your most memorable experiences? So the crash of 87, I think, you know, as we've gone through, um, you know, I've been doing a lot more TV than I ever did before. And there obviously have been a lot, you know, um, there's a handful of us that the press uh, loves to follow around because we are sort of reactive and emotional and we are, you know, really tied to our customers super intensely and we have great expressions. You know, the expressions are real. They're not staged. And but, you know, you have to realize that you're trading other people's money. You're trading your company's customers money. We're the point of execution. So the excitement and the emotionality is real. Um, what we're seeing now is when when around March 15th of this year, when we started, uh, the market had just had two or three days of circuit breakers 
going off and COVID was really coming onto our shores mm -hmm. and the market was really getting beaten up from February 12th to March 23rd. Um, we were doing, I was doing a lot of interviews and people were sort of trying to, they were asking me, how, how does this relate to all the other incredible crisis situations that you have experienced speaking to me over my career on Wall Street? And, you know, I think what we're going through now, what we went through now before the NYSE closed is unprecedented in so many ways. I'll go back to that in a minute. But, you know, the crash of 87 was ex extraordinary, right? It was still a time where there was no technology. It was very personal. It was very human. And it was there was such deep anxiety in it. And um, I remember that I remember that vividly in so many ways. Stocks were dropping at, you know, two, three, four dollars. And obviously it's it's not the market it is today. It was sort of a more intense microcosm of, of, of what we understand of the floor of the stock exchange. Sure. But since then, obviously, the, you know, 9-11 was a huge event, obviously, but it was, you know, it was more, it, it was different from the floor's point of view. We closed the reopening. Obviously, there was anxiety around of working downtown and feeling that that fear of what was going to happen the day itself that the uh, towers were, were um, hit. We were all down there. We were locked in on the floor. That was surely a time that, you know, I, I, I'd rather not think about it, but it was devastating. Sure. It didn't affect our market trading and whatnot. I would think what's times that are so significant over the last number of years would be, you know, a lot of the headline driven, tweet driven, volatile markets that we've seen. The day of the election uh, of Mr. Trump, the uh, Brexit call, the North Korea fears, China trade. Um, all those uh, all those deep headline events that have caused so much volatility over the last two or three years have been super exciting for me every day being on the floor. You're at the delta of so much wonderful excitement, so much wonderful news. And there's distress and anxiety of being at the point of execution for people. You know, it's real money, real people, real emotions. And, and you're trying to do the best for your customer. And in markets that are so wild and and, and volatile, you know, uh, those are exciting days. I don't think there's ever been a non-exciting day. But and that's what's incredible about that floor because, I mean, it's probably one of the most important places in the world, right, if you think about it, because you have past presidents that have been there, prime ministers, a lot of celebrities, right? And you're getting important news firsthand, so to speak. So it is so significant symbolically and 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 financially and in every possible way, it really represents, you know, even though and it's something we may talk about, but the difference between the markets and the economy, which we're seeing now in the last two months, or it can be such a divergence. The floor of the stock exchange, the human element, the last bastion of capitalism, as was said in that great Trading Places movie, um, where it's a historic spot. You know, people who have, who have signed the book to become brokers goes back to the Carnegies and the JP Morgans of the day, you know, the celebrities and the and the heads of state throughout the world who have been down there, the amount of money that goes through there on a daily basis, what it represents, you know, the 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 goals and the earnings and the guidance um, uh, of of the economies of the world start and end there, really. So even though we don't do the volume, um, that we used to do, right? We used to be 80% of the world volume before they deregulated it and set up trading platforms around the world. Right. Now, 
probably do 20% and whatnot. I think we're just as relevant even more as we were before there was a lot of the electronic trading. Um, but uh, it's, imp it's important to note that the, that the room represents, it is the, oh, where we open and where we close and what goes on from nine to four on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, no matter what, whether we do less volume or not, affects all the other markets around the world that open and close after us, right? Right. It, it is the preeminent marketplace and it is and it's viewed that way globally by the investment community. So in that way, it is the most exciting place in the world. And you typically work on some of the biggest IPOs, right? Like Facebook, Alibaba, Snapchat. We, uh, we did not do Facebook. That was a Nasdaq name. But we we do Alibaba and IPOs are something that is one of the things I do a lot of. And so, yes, they are big events for us uh, on the floor now. It is part of the NYSE's big business model at, you know, uh, over the last number of years. We've seen incredible companies come down there and do incredibly well on the New York Stock Exchange. Obviously, there's a little competition between the NYSE and NASDAQ relative for IPOs. And we always talk about the fact that Facebook went to NASDAQ and we got all the other big listings and we, you know, we were not part of the debacle of the Facebook IPO. But yes, they are big events and they, you know, we always, uh, uh, they're the culmination of the roadshow that goes into a company going public. But what's important, and I always talk about it with the people in the crowd, during those IPOs, which is probably their heads of their board and the CEO and their families and whatnot, because for them, it's the most exciting days of their life when a company that started in their garage, perhaps, ends up, you know, going public on the floor is that the way the stock opens, the price discovery process, you know, that building of the foundation of a company that happens after the roadshow is done and you come down to the floor of the stock exchange will really affect the future of the company in so many ways. Right. It is only one day. It's a one day event culminating months and months of the roadshow into the IPO. But the way the stock opens, the price discovery, the way the market makers and the brokers handle it, the way the customers and the public value the company and how it opens and how it trades through its first day are incredibly important. And it will really portend the future of the company. Right. And as you said before, you know, human intervention is so important. Like, for instance, my partner who runs our stock portfolio, Sid guy, he stresses on the point that before he places a trade, he wants to speak to a human. And we're not necessarily traders, we're more so value investors. Right. But having that source at the floor is so incredibly important. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, you got to start calling me. Okay, <laughs> I'll we, give you that But um, I would be happy to offer you that service. Um, so historically, in the old days, before electronic trading, when somebody had an order to do, right, whether, whether it was a brokerage firm or the high wealth investor, uh, the first call that was made was the information call. They wanted to send a broker, and I remember this from early on as a clerk and, and as a young trader, was the call, someone you would call down whether they had 5,000 shares to buy or a million shares to buy of a company. Obviously, the decision on when and how to buy it was being made upstairs by portfolio managers. But before the order came down to the floor, you did a reconnaissance um, uh, approach, which meant that the trader from the desk upstairs would call down and ask the girl, he'd say, you know, just send Johnny out and give me a look in, in, you know, Wells Fargo, in JP Morgan, you know, in digital equipment. Get me a look, meaning show me where are the buyers, where are the sellers, 
who's down there, what's their interest, how's the stock been acting over the last couple of days? Because even though a lot of the work that's done in the event of getting the order has already been done by whether it's investment bankers and mergers or whether it's just portfolio managers, what's happening in the pits between the buyers and sellers, where the bodies are lying and where people's interests are, it's like it's like doing reconnaissance on a poker game. You want to see who's out there, who's got their order, how they're acting, and where wh what's going on. Yeah. Uh, that first call is so important. And what ends up happening is you send your broker out to find out. Now, this is the old days. It had, it's a little less interactive now, where you'd go out and go, so who are the buyers? Who are they? And you could tell from the, who had the order and how they were handling it, what was their instructions, right? How was their posture? Were they aggressive? Were they news uh, oriented? Were they sort of sit back and wait? Were they playing the poker game or what? And so once you got back that information, these are where the buyers are. These are where the sellers are. Then you then you you become nimble and you freestyle a, a uh, an approach on how you going to proceed. If you have a million shares to buy, you may just want to go in there and buy them in an aggressive fashion. If you are a small buyer and it's a sensitive thin stock. You may want to go in there and sort of just kind of play a poker face and buy little bits at a time. So that first look, that human interaction of finding out the information reconnaissance is super important, all the more important today. But it's a little harder to get that kind of information today in electronic marketplaces. In the old days, you'd go in and everyone would be in the crowd and you'd ask everybody, what are you doing? What are you doing? Hey, Johnny, how's everything? And it was that wonderful human intervention. Now it's a little bit different. You've got to dig into the nooks and crannies of the electric system to see who's there, what have they been doing lately. But at the end of the day, the information is the key to how you buy stock and how you present yourself in a crowd. Right. Okay, interesting. Um, you know, another interesting thing about you um, that I find, or at least I admire very deeply, is the fact that you're a true entrepreneur. You know, you come from humble beginnings. I believe you have family members that were in the Holocaust. True. Both of my parents, my whole family. I mean, what was that whole experience like? I mean, what was that backstory? So uh, my parents grew up in Eastern Europe. Mother was Czech. Father was Polish, uh, obviously of Jewish descent. Um, obviously, they were there in 1939 and they were two of the first countries that were occupied by the Nazis. They ended up both spending four years in concentration camp, uh, did not know each other yet. They met um, in the deportation camp after liberation in 1944. Uh, a lot of the prisoners, the few that did survive those camps, which were basically extermination camps, were sort of rounded up to try and in what they call deportation camps, persons uh, um, camps, where basically everyone who had been uh, in prison for four years or more or or two to four years and had lost most family members were sort of corralled together to try by the British, by the Americans uh, and by all liberating forces to try and figure out what to do, what was the next step on helping these people go forward within their lives. And so they were corralled together in cities like Heidelberg and, and, and some other uh, and Berlin and other uh, other large cities in Germany to figure out what the next step was, what countries were going to be willing to take some of the refugees. And my parents ended up meeting there. Uh, they fell in love and they moved to, my father went to medical school in Heidelberg, one of the first uh, Jews allowed in a, in a German medical school after the war. 
And then they met, they met there, they spent two years there, and then they moved to the United States. So, you know, it's, it's very apropos of, I think, what's going on now in the world. You know, they came from a background of uh, a wonderful Eastern European background uh, that obviously goes back generations. Then they went through an incredibly devastating period of World War II. And then they came to the United States in 1949, having found, you know, found each other and, and came here for a new life. And my father was a doctor, became a very well-known doctor. My mother was his, his soulmate and friend. And, uh, and they went on to have a, have a beautiful life here and, and live the American dream. Very nice. And, you know, that's, I believe, was the definition of the American dream. So I, I just found that to be a beautiful story. Thank you. And, you know, I was doing a lot of reading on you and I saw that you do a lot of charity work um, and you give a lot like you're just giving back to a lot of people. I read a story about you brought a young child that was suffering from cancer and you brought him to the floor and they gave him this big rendition. I, I just thought that was a beautiful story. Did you see the video? It's a wonderful thing. I think everyone should actually see it's a um, you know, it's not really just me. It's what I've learned. Um, the floor of the stock exchange historically um, which is made up of such an incredible, diverse group of people, basically people from the neighborhood, uh, you know, and the, uh, some of the most philanthropic, altruistic, wonderful giving back group of people I've ever met in my life since my experience down there, whether it was helping people from our own community on the floor or people outside of that doing charitable work. It was something I learned from everyone on the floor, some of the most powerful people in that way. And for me, um, you know, uh, go having having that background that we just described, and and really having learned through this spiritual journey that giving back is such an important part uh, of of being a good person, and 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 having a you know uh, having a purpose that I was and and it turned out that situation was that my my wife had gotten ill and um, in May of that last year, and so that was sort of taking our family through some hard times and I had sort of stumbled upon through a lot of work I do with some young artists who I'm mentoring and helping and we have a beautiful art show at the New York Stock Exchange. Um, it, it came, it sort of came through the crossroads of my life that this young uh, boy named King Singh, who at six years old, who had been suffering from cancer since the age of three, sort of came into my social media network and and just made an impact on me. And, um, you know, and I, I thought, what a wonderful thing to do would be to, to, you know, it turned out that when I was introduced to his dad through social media, I called him and he had been following me on Instagram because I followed this artist named King Saladin. And, um, and they had in fact met both being named King, both loving art. And I was sort of the, the conduit to their meeting. And so I thought what, you know, it turned out that this young boy, for some reason, started following me on Instagram and watching the stock exchange because he had heard that they ring a bell there. And mm -hmm. he's six years old, right? And it turns out that every day, every week or weekly, I think when he finished his chemotherapy, they would ring a bell. Yeah. And then the dream was that at the end of his treatments, he had been treated for many, many years, there would be a bell ringing. So he watched the opening of the stock exchange every day. So I thought what a great thing would be to give this young man the opportunity to come down to the floor and ring the opening bell. And uh, it sort of, once I brought the story to light to everyone at the Stock Exchange, who are such giving wonderful people, they said, let's just go out, all out for this young man who had been having chemo from the age of three. 
So I brought all these artists together and we had beautiful things made for him. The stock exchange opened up their hearts to him. They let him ring the opening bell. They gave him a trading jacket. He signed the book and it was one of the great experiences of my life, I must say. Very nice. I love that. Okay. And, and going to the artwork, um, I heard you have a museum going on in the, on the Florida Stock Exchange. What we call the Big Board Art Hall. So the Stock Exchange has been a place where there's been beautiful art, historic art, mostly, I would think, for, for its, its whole history in the building, right? We occupy the whole building of 11 Wall Street. And uh, it, it, through my social media uh, journey, I have become very close and um, close friends and mentoring of a lot of young artists. And uh, once um, the stock exchange sort of started rebranding re itself, you know, when they were taken over by ICE and there was sort of a new branding and a lot of companies like Snapchat and, and, and Twitter, sort of social media companies started getting listed on the floor. I thought it would be fun to sort of readapt the, 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 the posture of the exchange as far as their artwork goes. And so I proposed to the powers that be to bring some young art that art that related to money. So it was not just a, a far flung idea, but you know, a lot of young street artists are ha, have art that relates to money and markets and buy low, sell high. And sure. so I made a addition of three artists to be exhibited on the sixth floor, which is the where the boardroom is on at the stock exchange. And they they went for the idea and it's been there now for a year. And King Saladin, Mr. E, and a man named John Bourne, three spectacular artists, have adorned the building. And we're hoping that once the exchange starts to reopen again, and um, once we allow people back in the building, that we will uh, recurate the hall and there'll be some new artists there. Got it. And is this all on your Instagram? It is on my Instagram. If people look on it, you'll see King Saladin, one of the great artists who I, who I work with. His artwork is up there, and we've done a lot of a lot of work together. Mr. E is a gentleman whose artwork is basically about large bills. He's got this hundred dollar bill, which Very we cool. have the walls of the exchange. What's and the name of your Instagram account? What's that? What's the name of your Instagram? It's for everybody that's listening. Sign of Wall Street. I sign of Wall Street. Got right. it. Right. My website is on there too. You can hit bio the link, and you can see all about what's going on there. Amazing. And this is something that all the CEOs and all the big investors that came to the stock exchange were able to see it themselves, right? I'm glad you know you noticed that. Yes, that was for me one of the most exciting things that as people get off on the sixth floor conferences or whether it's for IPOs or if it's for heads of state, they all make their way to the boardroom, which is a room from 1903 who has basically entertained some of the greatest, most powerful people in the world. And now every one of them getting off the elevator has to walk down my big board art hall awesome. and they see these artists and we've had some of the greatest responses of, of all time from it so yes that's wonderful that's the payoff and you, you know when i told people that i was having this interview with you today i asked them to send me questions and the two most common questions that i got for them well i'll start with the first one okay. we know you met you know hundreds of very prominent investors celebrities but who are the individuals that stuck out to you the most? Who are you most proud of meeting? Um, wow, it's a great question. You know, look, I think they fall into different categories. Uh, um, you know, I'm wondering what, uh, you know, there are a number, obviously, of hedge fund people. I mean, you know, some of the most exciting, I mean, I've become friendly with a number of the sharks from Shark Tank, Kevin O'Leary, friend, and 
he's sort of a super exciting, wonderful investor, educator, right? I love people who are in finance who now have sort of turned their focus on not only trading and making money, but also trying to educate younger people on finance and the excitement of investing in their future. Um, I, I, the CEO of, uh, of, uh, of Shake Shack, um, you know, uh, Danny Meyer and, and Randy Garudi are, are wonderful who I've met. And then you've got, you know, wonderful um, celebrities who have been super exciting. Also, um, I think one of the most exciting, it's like your celebrity, who would you love to meet, uh, you know, a lot just from their level of excitement, nothing to do with finance, I would think would be sort of Sean Connery, you oh, know, sure. or Howie Mandel or um, DJ Khaled, super exciting. You know, it's, it's, it's wonderful to see when people who are not in our industry, celebrity-wise, come down to the floor and they really can feel the energy down there and they see it and, and, and they're humble and they, they, they just relate to it in a big way. Obviously, the cast of Billions, super exciting. Um, and um, I mean, if you look on the website, you know, I have a whole page of, you know, I mean, I could go get a, you know. Uh, uh, Is this Watchful Securities website? Uh, no, it's actually the Einstein of Wall Street website, www.einsteinofwallstreet.com. And there'll be, you know, there are thousands of, 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 uh, of celebrities who I've met, been, you know, from comedians to uh, the George Lopez to, uh, you know, the, uh, I mean, there have been so many things. Uh, James Corden, we did a, um, you know, the late night TV host came down to the floor and did, he has a show called A League of Their Own, where they travel around the world and they, uh, uh, they bring these five um, contestants who are uh, famous uh, sports people and uh, TV personalities. And they basically pick people's jobs like race car driver, stockbroker, and they go into their lives for a little while and they spend the day with them. And so he came down to the floor and we actually did mock trading with him. And that was incredibly exciting. Oh, that must be cool. There have been heads of state that have been sort of powerful to me. Um, um, it's just been a wonderful journey and, you know, people can see that. Oh, I can imagine. And the second most common question was, and I'm sure you've been asked this a thousand times, what are you predicting in the market this year? So, you know, I don't really predict the market and I don't advise people on what to do or stocks in specific. I'm more of a, what I call myself a forensic analyst of the day-to-day -day movement of the market. And so I think it's important to note that right now, these are there's no playbook for what's going on. OK, um, you know, these are uncharted waters. So we and, and every day it changes. There are new pieces of this puzzle that are very market impactful things that are happening on a daily basis. Who would have thought that this virus would have been came to the level of pandemic as it has that scorched the earth and there's not a human on earth who has not been affected by it, how it ground global economies to a complete halt how then it came over the shores and it decimated our market from February 12th to March 23rd in a six week period going from record highs to, to uh, from the peak to the trough of a, of a deeply oversold, devastated market on March 23rd. And then you see the Federal Reserve throw $5 trillion into the marketplace, buying bonds, buying junk, buying equities and rebuilding their balance sheet. Mm -hmm. And in the eyes of a complete economic shutdown in every possible way, consumer out of business, demand gone, retail devastated, hospitality industry decimated, um, airlines and whatnot, 
Yet the market has rebounded 65% in the eyes of a complete on a global pandemic and a global economic slowdown. So where do you go from here? Is the market going to catch up with the economy, which is surely in a state of recession and or depression over the next six months with 40 million uh, unemployed, one out of four businesses, perhaps three out of four businesses never opening again, uh, 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 devastating um, uh, bankruptcies and whatnot, and the state of you know the movie industry, uh, the hospitality industry, the airline industry, oil and whatnot. Where do we go with that? Is the market going to catch up with the economy and really retest the lows of March 23rd? Or is the economy going to catch up with the market and sort of uh, join that backwind of an incredibly strong, uh, 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 strong market? I don't believe the market is up on fundamentals. There's no way it could be because we don't even know the unknowns over the next six months as we try to reopen and we have the headwinds we do in every industry possible, right? How sure. is we can't even predict guidance, guidance any longer. So <laughs> earnings are questionable. Surely the future is a complete unknown. So that's my fear. And now suddenly we're talking here today on, um, uh, on Tuesday, you know, and we're now in the midst of this attempt at reopening the economies and we're running into this devastating protests and what happened in Minnesota. So um, that's another wild card in our situation and, uh, and deep respect for everything going on and for the death of George. But um, if we look at it, how it's going to relate to the reopening and what's going to happen in the market, it's a complete another wild card and a piece of this puzzle that we don't know the answer to. Right. Is this going to locate the rally? You know, the rally is all about $5 trillion being funneled into the market and finding its way into equities and the New York Stock Exchange, right? That's why the market is rebounding, right? And uh, if you throw enough fuel on a fire and you have enough of a, of a green tsunami that your next guest, Anthony Scaramucci, called it the other day, he said, there's nothing fundamental about this rally. It's a green tsunami. If you throw enough money at it, it's going to go up. But the question is, what happens when that money runs out? Is there going to be more? We have an administration running on, on uh, uh, running their platform to be the, the great market uh, administration. And if this fails, is that going to affect the reelection? So are they going to put more fuel behind it when the money runs out? And then is the devastation and unknowns of the next six months of the reopening and God forbid what could happen as far as a spike in the virus, the, the small weather businesses running at 25% capacity are ever going to be able to become profitable again, right? Where is the demand gonna come for? What is the, what is the state of the consumer, right? Mm -hmm. We were on February 12th at a record high because the consumer was robust. That's our economy. It's right. been high and markets have been high off of the extraordinary, uh, and not everybody, let's be respectful, not everybody's participating in this thing, right? We know that. There right. are many people in this world who are not participating in this incredible level of consumerism and market rally and, and, and uh, profitability with disposable income. But the state of the consumer, the confidence of the nation as we reopen, all these wild cards that are going on with 40 million un unemployed and the protests going forward and whatnot, those are all the unknowns. So the best answer to your question is, I don't know. Sure. 
And, you know, it's funny that you say that because somebody that I follow very closely is, of course, the great Mr. Buffett. And, you know, Warren Buffett said that even he's not sure because this is, some, like you said, this is something that we have not experienced in the past. This is something ra rather biblical. Right. And I was rather shocked because I thought when COVID broke out that he would do a lot of buying then. But he held back and a lot of people were shocked by that. You know what? It was shocking to everyone because, you know, he look, let's like I said, there is no playbook. So normally when we are in oversold mode due to a short term crisis, what they call a situational crisis, Warren Buffett is the first one when everyone's selling, he buys. When everyone's buying, he sells. That's a normal, smart entrepreneurial approach and a great investor approach. But however, it was really amazing to see him get honest about the fact he didn't buy a share of stock on March 23rd. Mm -hmm. and that sell-off period of time. He basically liquidated all of his positions in all the airlines. Yep. To me, whether he said, he goes, never never bank never bank against uh, uh, America. Never give up on this, you know, never bet against America. Right. And I'm a firm believer in that. But to not presume that eventually, what the unknowns of the next six months are gonna be, that it's possible to retest those lows. And the fact that one of the greatest investors in the world, who I also follow, was basically at a standstill and said, you know what? I have no playbook for this. This is not a normal situational oversold situation here, right? There are so many unknowns. Yes, I would rather buy the market at 30,000 in the Dow and 3,400 in the S&P when all the bad news is out rather than try and pick a bottom here. You know what I'm saying? I would, yeah. rather, I would be a, rather be a participant in a solid fundamental rally than to be the guy who decides today's the day to buy them and watch the market suddenly catch up with the economy and be a couple thousand points in, 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 in the red. Right. Peter, thank you so much for coming on today. I mean, this was absolutely great. I, I can't thank you enough. Absolutely. My pleasure. Great to meet you. For all those that are listening, you know, we have a lot of investors in the market. Um, how could they follow you? How could they get in touch with Quattro Securities? So you can, I'm on Instagram, on sign of Wall Street, DM me. I respond to absolutely everybody. You can go on my website, which is a new launch for me. It's www.einsteinofwallstreet.com. I'm on Twitter. I'm reachable. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm always reachable. I read it every day and I am, I'm available. Young people who want to know about investing and, you know, I, I, I uh, work with a, a trading school to teach people about day trading. It's called the Green Room Live if anyone wants to do that. We're working on some things that are about fractional investing, opening up some apps and stuff like that. Very so cool. I'm here to educate young people. I'm always helped to, here to give people direction on how to find a purpose and something about this market that wakes them up in the morning and be excited. Whether it's trading, whether it's finance, whether it's advertising and marketing, there's so many opportunities that the market offers us to get excited about something. You know, my motto is if you find something you love to do, You'll never work a day in your life. That's the key here. Go out and find something that want that 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 gets you up in the morning, right? And and there's so many different things in the nooks and crannies of the New York Stock Exchange in all the branding marketing companies that we as consumers work and live with. You know that there's got to be something out there. And if you need help finding direction to 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 whether you're 15, 25, or 50 or whatever you want, I'm available. I love it. Thank you so much, Peter. My pleasure.